Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, living in a fallen world and having sin even within ourselves, even for us as Christians, we can go to different extremes. You know, sometimes... Uh, we land in one error and that causes us to then uh, go to the other side uh, as, a, as a rebound and sometimes that also ends up in error as well. You know, one thing that I can think of is when people have been in churches where they don't uh, preach the gospel regularly and when they hear the commands of God, it sounds very oppressive, very restrictive. And while it is true that uh, you know, what fuels uh, the, the commands is ultimately from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should not then take the other route or the other extreme, which is, oh, so it's just about the gospel and it's just about grace. Don't give me commandments. Don't give me the law of God because it is too oppressive. See, I think what happens is often we misunderstand the word of God or the law of God and the grace of God. See, because the word of God really is an extension of God's grace. The word of God is an extension of God's goodness. See, the, the, the way we can... Enjoy the life that God has given us is not outside of, outside of living under the law of God or the word of God. The way we enjoy the life that God has given to us is, is living under the word of God. See, that is the fear by which we enjoy everything that God intends for us to enjoy. We don't get it outside. So the word of God or the law of God is never oppressive. It is simply an extension of his grace, an extension of his goodness. You know, last week I ended by saying that the glory of God and our goodness are not in opposition. Yes, God does everything in this world for his glory. But the flip side of that same coin is this, that everything is that is for his glory is also always for the good of his people. Even when things might be hard, it is always for the good of his people. He never does anything to ruin his people, to lead them to destruction. He's not a deceptive God like that. He is a good God. And I also reminded you as we ended uh, last week about, therefore, the importance of not adding to God's word or subtracting from God's word like Eve did. Because God's word is our protection. God's word, God's authority, God's rule is what keeps us in that blessed life, in that joyful life that God intends for us to live in. 
So when we add to God's word or we subtract from God's word, we're going from outside the goodness of God, that sphere of goodness of God. And guess what happens when you step outside the goodness of God or the grace of God? Bad things happen. Because ultimately, when we step outside the goodness of God under the word of God, it leads to our ruin. So we must understand this. The word of God, even the commands of God, they are not restrictive if we understand the true sense of what the word of God is. It is an extension of who he is. It is an extension of his character. And it is for our good that when we live under his word, we can experience the joy and the blessed life and the satisfaction that God intended for us. And with that in mind, and we'll see some of that even this morning as we look at the text, and I pray that it would encourage your heart with regards to the word of God and being obedient to him, that obedience is not an oppressive thing at all to, for us to submit to God, but it is a wonderful thing, and it's by design that we can live according to how God has made us to live. In fact, you know, we, we've even talked about imaging God, right? God made us in his image. And that means that mankind has the ability to image him or reflect God or his character. Now, let me ask you one thing. While God may have created that, how do we know what it is that we need to do to image him? How do we know that? Through his word. And so even that, the way we image God too is by listening to his word and obeying his word. Because it is God's word, and so when we obey God's word, we are reflecting God and his character. And that again is for our good. It never leads to our ruin. It is for our joy. It is for our satisfaction. It is for our blessed life that God intended for us. And we should never, ever, ever forget that because the the minute we somehow change the commands of God or the word of God or the law of God into something that is oppressive or restrictive, we will be tempted to move out of that. And guess what? There's no more goodness. It will lead to our ruin. Now, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And we looked at how the serpent who was possessed by Satan comes to Eve and, she first, and he first brings in a question. Did God actually say? I mean, he's almost like, wow, God actually said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, talk, talk about shrewdness, right? That's, that's what he did. He just simply posed a question to inject doubt into the mind of Eve. And then we saw in her response how she minimizes God's abundant provision to, oh yeah, God uh, said we can eat from the trees, but not from every tree and to freely eat. She, she's lost sight of that. And then suddenly she's just focusing on the negative, the prohibition. And she says, oh, but God said, uh, you shall not eat from this tree and not even touch it. She's magnifying the prohibitions that God has given. 
And, and, and so even in her mind, slowly something is happening where she's losing sight of the goodness of God and how it's not connected to the word of God and she's separating the two. And then finally, when Satan sees that, oh, okay, she's, she's losing sight of God's goodness, she's losing sight of the fact that his word is good as well, and then Satan goes in for the kill, where he then completely contradicts God's word and says, no, you will not surely die. God is a liar. And he says, the reason why God does not want you to eat from this fruit of the forbidden tree is because you will have the knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God. He's keeping something good from you. So that's where we ended last week. And today we will look at the fall of mankind in verses 6 and 7. See, Satan's done his job. If you can explain away God's word and his authority and his goodness, then anyone is easy prey now to fall into sin. And that's what Satan has done now. See, he's made all these innuendos and questions. He's, he's not even directly told Eve, no, you must disobey God. No, he's just made these statements and these questions to cause these doubts and to cause her to sin. And that's where we come to now, verses 6 and 7, the fall of mankind. Just by way of outline, I've got three points. Firstly, the the first half of verse 6, we're going to look at the internal progression of sin. Then in the second half of verse 6, we're going to see the external expression of sin. And then lastly, in verse 7, we're going to look at the immediate ramification of sin. So let's look at first the internal progression of sin, just the first half of verse 6. So when the, woman's, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, uh, let me just uh, stop there. You know, what you'll see in verse 1 is that there's a progression happening in what's happening with Eve's thinking. I mean, there's so much detail given there. You know, the Bible could have easily said, oh, Satan tempted her, uh, she succumbed, and she ate the fruit. But the Bible actually, uh, you know, this is not a dialogue going, but just what's happening inside of her. We get a glimpse into what's happening in her heart and in her mind. And what the Bible wants to show us is for us to understand how sin snowballs from our thinking and our desires and ultimately to that outward behavior of sin. Because this pattern is the same for everyone. The, how this first sin happened is the same way we all struggle with sin and temptation as well, when we fall into temptation. So when it says there, And it starts there by saying, so when the woman saw that the tree was good. Now, for those of you who have been here from when we've started in Genesis 1, does that wording sound familiar to you? 
saw that the tree was good? Remember in Genesis chapter 1, there is this repeated phrase after God finishes creating something. And God saw that it was good. God made this, and God saw that it was good. God made the light and the day, and God saw that it was good. He created the animals, and God saw that it was good. He created mankind and everything else, and God saw that it was good. And we saw, you know, what it meant, you know, by that phrase was that God is evaluating his work, and he's declaring it to be good. And there's a sense in which God is establishing what is good. He's defining what is good and what is not. So keeping that in mind, when you hear the words now, where Eve is looking at the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil and says, and she saw that it was good, what is she doing? She is now determining for herself what is good instead of what God has said. See, she's making an evaluation of this tree and saying this is good for her. She's already in her mind determining that this tree is good for her and not heeding God's word. The text says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now let me ask you something. Is it wrong to desire food? No, right? It's a God-given desire. Let me ask you another question. Was this the only tree in the garden that was good for food? No. Remember, all the trees in the garden had fruit that was good for food. There was food everywhere. But what was wrong in her desire for food, especially from this tree, is that this was the only tree that God said you cannot eat from. It wasn't that this tree was inherently evil or the fruit of this tree was poisonous or bad or something like that. No, this tree too was something that God had created, so there was nothing inherently wrong with this tree. But this was the one tree that God forbade the man and the woman to eat from for their own good. So that's why the desire that she has now is wrong to want of the fruit of the tree that God himself had forbidden. See, this is important to understand because Eve is re-evaluating the order and the rule that God has placed in the garden. She's really re-evaluating God's word. She's taking a closer look at this forbidden tree and she's beginning to believe that the food from this tree is going to be more satisfying than any other tree that God has provided for her. And you can see from this that she's beginning to be driven, not by the word of God now, but she's being driven by her own desire. And we all know this, right? 
You know, someone who says, oh, I know the Bible says it's wrong to have sexual intimacy with someone outside of the marriage, but I love that person and it feels so good. Is that person driven by the word of God or their own desire? Or sometimes even with a more spiritual spin to it. Oh, I know that the Bible says it's wrong to divorce your spouse, but things are just so bad between us and we don't love each other anymore. And, and you know what? I've even prayed about it and I have the peace about it. So I divorced my spouse. Is a person being driven by the word of God or their own desire? Something similar is happening inside of Eve's heart. Her definition of what is good is not determined by what God's word has said, but by what she desires. There is a distortion going on. What is good has become evil, and what is evil and sinful has become good in her eyes. This is the first step of descent into sin. When we're driven, when she's driven by her desire and she has convinced herself that what God has forbidden is actually for her good. Next, the text says that it was a delight to her eyes. It was a delight to her eyes. See, now as she sees the tree and the fruit, uh, you know, she's just taken aback by, wow, this is just such a beautiful thing. Now, now let me ask you this. Was this tree and the fruit that's born from this tree more beautiful than any of the trees in the garden? No. Why? Because remember, in Genesis 2.9, this is what it is said about all the trees that God planted in the garden. Just to refresh your memory, Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree, notice, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Without exception, every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food. So there was not a single ugly tree in the garden. Every tree in the garden was beautiful and pleasant to the eyes. God didn't particularly make this one tree more pleasant than the other trees. No, it's the same as all the other trees. But as Eve's gaze now is is fixed on this one tree... It stood out to her especially beautiful compared to all the other trees. She's seeing this tree in a totally different light. She's now attracted to this one particular tree and the fruit of this tree. There is an exaggeration, a distortion in her heart about the pleasure and the delight that this fruit will bring to her. And that's how temptation often looks right, right? When we focus on what God has forbidden, and we're driven not by his word, but by our selfish desires, the, the, the supposed pleasure, the, the supposed delight that this Temptation, whatever we are tempted by, can bring, seems even more exaggerated in our minds. 
Like as though, oh, but God doesn't understand. He's, he's keeping this good pleasure, this good thing away from me. And I need to have this. So that's what's going on with Eve now. Third, the text says, and then she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, the term here for desired, it's used negatively in the Bible, and it has the sense of unrestrained, selfish desire. In fact, it has the same root word as covet. So you can see how, the, how her desire has now grown, and now she's, she's coveting it. The forbidden tree has, the, the forbidden fruit has become something that she must have by any means. It has become an idol for her. And one commentator defines the essence of covetousness this way. It's the attitude that says, I need something I do not have right now in order to be happy. That's in essence what her thinking is now. By believing in the lies and half-truths of Satan, by somehow, through the help of Satan, doing away with the goodness of God's word and even the prohibition that God's word had set for her, for her own good, by doing away with that, She's now purely focusing on what God has forbidden. She's seeing it as something that is good, that God has kept from her. And it is stirring up a selfish, covetous desire in her. She now believes that if she goes outside the boundaries of what God has set for her, that if she disobeys God's word and she goes outside of his rule, she will find more fulfillment, more satisfaction, more happiness, and in fact, that she will even be wise. But think about it. I mean, God is the all-wise God. And it is from God that wisdom comes. From him alone comes wisdom. And only as we follow God's word, we walk in wisdom. So the so-called wisdom that Satan promises, or the wisdom that, the, that this world promises under the influence of Satan is but foolishness. You know, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and even James 3 make, make all that clear, how the wisdom of this world is just foolishness. But as we follow God's word, in the fear of God, we get wisdom. And this wisdom that we get from God by following his word is what is good for us. It is the pathway of living the satisfied, joyous, content, and blessed life that God intends for us. Listen to some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So to to honor God, to reverence God, and know him, and, and fear him, and live According to his ways, that is what is wisdom. And then Proverbs 8.35, where wisdom is personified, says, For whoever finds me, i.e. whoever finds wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So here's what all this means. The, The blessed, happy, satisfied, content life that God intends for his children comes by fearing God and by obeying his word. You will not get that outside of the bounds of God's word. When you go outside of his rule, when you go outside of his authority, you will not get that kind of life, no matter what the world may promise, no matter what your sinful heart may think it will give you. In fact, even Psalm 1, right? We, we, we all know Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of uh, the scornful. Uh, stand, walk, sit. And then finally says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the blessed person who listens to God's word, delights in God's word, and walks according to God's ways. That's the blessed life. That's the only way you get the blessed life. How, how the grace that God has given you, how you sustain that wonderful life that God has given you, is only by living under God's word. So thinking of all that, now when you hear that, uh, oh, le- le- let me just say this. If living according to God's word brought wisdom and therefore life, which is the abundant life or the blessed and joyous life, then abandoning God and his word and seeking wisdom and pleasure and goodness and satisfaction outside of that boundary will lead to ruin and ultimately death. Sinning against God and his word will never make us wise or happy or content. So that's what happens when sin begins to take root in us. So so let me just summarize the big idea here. When we ignore God's word and we focus on what God has forbidden and our desire grows till it becomes an idol, then we will make every justification, our own heart will make every justification to somehow get that, even to the point of blatantly disobeying God's word and dishonoring God's word. But guess what? It will ultimately lead only to our ruin and death. So that's where Eve is at. She has lingered on, focused on the forbidden, 
doubting God's word and his goodness. So all that is now pushed aside. And she's believing in Satan's lies, including the lie of a better life, a satisfied life, a happy life that is beyond the boundaries that God has set for her. Now her own desires have become corrupted. It's out of control. And she thinks she must have this forbidden fruit in order to have this falsely promised, fulfilled life. Sin has taken root in our heart. And now it's inevitable that it's going to be now birthed out in her external behavior. Now the second part of verse 6, as we look at how this sin now is seen on the outside, the external expression of this sin, Second part of verse 6 says, so now that all this has happened, inside of her, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. I mean, remember when we're doing Genesis 1 and 2? What a beautiful world! I mean, we, we were all thinking, wow, I mean, how much ever we could think with our fallen minds, and, and still, it, it was such a beautiful world that God had created. It was a perfect world, and everything was provided for them, and they were able to enjoy God and his blessings in this paradise garden, and yet here, we see both of them rebelling against God. What takes place in Eve's heart, you know, can be summed up in what James 1, 14 and 15 says. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. While she was tempted by Satan, those lies took root in her heart. And sin was conceived. And now it's given birth in her outward action. You know, one thing to note here is this. Sin, when we think about it, we should never think about it as just external behavior. It's not just some or, you know, a mistake either. No, it's something way more deep-rooted. It's something that starts inside our hearts. You know, in the biblical counseling world, you know, it is often said there is no such thing as, oh, I, I didn't mean to say that, or I didn't mean to do that. Actually, I did mean that. Because in reality, what was in my heart, what I was thinking, what I was desiring, that's what's come out now in my words or in my action. Because it was already there in my heart. So sin is not a sudden, isolated, external event or behavior. 
No, it's a series of things and change in mindset and desire that happens on the inside, on the heart level. And sin is birthed there, just like we saw with Eve, and it ultimately results in the external behavior. So sin, we must always remember, it begins in our hearts, not in our actions. And if if you want to take it one step further, just think of this. Every time we sin, do you know what we're doing? We are reenacting the fall over and over and over and over again. Because that is exactly what happened to the fall. Every single time we sin, we are reenacting the fall. And so if we are ever going to deal with our sin, we shouldn't just deal with our external behavior. No, we need to deal with whatever that heart idol is, whatever the motive is behind that attitude or, or, or that external action. We need to deal with it at the heart level. So sin is conceived in Eve's heart now we see that sin come out in action. In fact, if you look at the action, the second part of the verse, it's quite brief, those actions mentioned. It's, it's almost like a staccato form. She took, she ate, she gave, she, he ate. You know, it's showing that once the sin was born in our heart, then the outward action that flowed out from the heart just, just happened very quickly. Now she eats the forbidden fruit, but notice this, this this is quite shocking too. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was with her the whole time. In fact, this is not the only evidence that Adam was with her the whole time. Because when Satan addresses Eve in the beginning of chapter 3, you know, what we looked at last week, verses 1 to 5, he uses the plural in addressing them, meaning he's directing whatever he's saying to both of them. See, when he asked the question in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat? That you there is in the plural. So he's not just referring to her, he's referring to her and Adam. And then in verse 4 when he says, you shall not surely die, again that's in the plural, referring to both her and Adam. And then even when Eve replies to the serpent in verse 2, what does she say? She says, we, in the plural. Now if Eve was the only person there the whole time, there is no reason for the serpent to use the plural. And for her to say, we, in a reply. And again, as verse 6 confirms, she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. So here's the implication. Adam has been a silent listener all this while. Eve doesn't defer to Adam, her head, the leader of the family, when the serpent starts making accusations about God. 
nor does Adam, who was called to, remember, guard the sacred garden of God and be the leader of the family, he doesn't do anything. He's just passive. He doesn't challenge the snake. He doesn't say things like, I know my God and his word. He is good, and to live under his word is a blessing. You don't get to speak like that about my God, Mr. Serpent. And I need you to get out of this garden. He doesn't say that. He failed in his duty. He didn't protect his wife, nor did he put up any resistance when his wife gave him the fruit. So when you think about both their sins, there's a difference. Eve was deceived by the serpent. She chose to reject God's word and doubted God's goodness and believed in the serpent's word. She allowed herself to believe in that false promise and disregard the threat of God. But Adam, on the other hand, he was not deceived by the serpent. He just followed his wife, ate the fruit that she gave knowingly, just without being deceived. In fact, the New Testament makes this even more clear when Apostle Paul states in 1 Timothy 2.14, very emphatically it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. He was not deceived. See, Adam being the head of the home did not protect his wife and she was deceived. At the same time, he willfully disobeyed God and listened to his wife. You know, perhaps Adam was thinking, you know, he saw his wife having this conversation and then he was just passively uh, just watching this. And Adam sees Eve take the fruit and she eats it and nothing happens to her. She's still standing there. She hasn't dropped dead. So he's willfully sins, probably thinking that nothing's going to happen to him either. Either way, the greater sin was Adam. The greater responsibility was with Adam. See, Adam willingly Eyes fully wide open, sinned against God. And being the head of the home, he didn't protect his wife and was answerable to God for what had happened in the garden with the serpent. And that is exactly why when God comes to the garden, God will question the man, Adam, and not the woman. Because he's ultimately responsible for what happened as the head of the family. And it is the same reason why even in the New Testament, Romans 5.12, for example, tells us that sin came into the world not through a woman, but through one man. The greater responsibility, the greater sin was in Adam. And what you see here in this scene is that the roles that God has established is overturned. Mankind wants to be equal with God 
or maybe even be above God and goes outside the boundaries that God has set. And they also submit to the word of the serpent that they were actually supposed to exercise dominion over. One commentator put it this way, quote, Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. See how the order is completely overturned? This was Satan's intention right from the start. To overthrow God's rule, to overthrow God's order, to bring chaos. So that this order, which reflects the goodness of God, the rule of God, would be totally destroyed. And so at the core of Adam and Eve's sin, when you look at, even though there's differences in their sin, they both rejected the authority and the rule of God. They rejected the blessed life that God had given them under his word by believing the false promises of the serpent. They rejected God's word and the order that he had set up. And ultimately, that's what sin is, right? Falling short of the perfection and the goodness of God that God has set up under his word. Or as the Bible more specifically defines it, you know, in 1 John 3, 4, where it says, sin is lawlessness, not heeding God's word. So even though Adam had greater responsibility, the acts of Adam and Eve were both acts of rebellion and sin against God. It was lawlessness. And see, God doesn't excuse their sin, as we will see moving forward. In any way, by saying, oh, you know, Eve, you were being tempted by the serpent. Oh, he's the supernatural being, uh, you know, the, the greatest tempter in the world. And this is the, the first time, so you get a free pass. Or not saying to Adam, oh, Adam, you know, you, you listen to your wife now, whatever that may be the reason. Maybe you just wanted to please her. Uh, that's okay, you get a free pass. No, God doesn't do anything like that. Because if you think about it, with regards to the woman, while the serpent was responsible to deceive her, the woman was ultimately the one who sinned. It was her desires, and ultimately she sinned. And it's the same case even with Adam. No one forced anyone, made them to sin. And so they are without excuse and God holds them responsible for their sinful act of rebellion. And just by way of application, I would say this. What that also means is that even for us, There is never a time when it is okay for us to sin. Never. No exceptions whatsoever. 
No matter what our circumstances, no matter if Satan himself is tempting us, no matter how tired we may be, no matter how difficult the other person may be, no matter how much pressure we may be under, no matter what difficulty we may be under, God still holds us accountable for our sins. And you say, why? Because sin is not something that is forced onto us from the outside. Sin is something that comes from within, from within our hearts. And because God has created us, he will hold us accountable as his creatures for our sin. God is good, and his goodness must be upheld by his creatures by keeping his word. So we looked at what's going on inside of Eve. We saw how then that act of rebellion came outside. And lastly, the immediate ramification of sin, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. See, after they disobeyed God and ate the fruit the text says that their eyes were opened. You know, in one sense, that is exactly what Satan said, right? When he was tempting Eve, oh, your eyes will be open when you eat this fruit. But here's the irony. Their eyes were not open in the way that they had expected. Adam and Eve imagined that their eyes would be opened in that they would have knowledge of good and evil and this would be for their good and bring greater satisfaction in their life. But instead, now they had knowledge of good and evil from the standpoint of evil. By experiencing evil by their own disobedience and becoming evil themselves, they now knew good and evil. Because previously all they knew was goodness, the goodness of God. On the one side, they knew evil and good like God, but on the other side, it was, vastly, it was a vastly different knowledge from God. Now one commentator has helpfully explained the distinction about the, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man with regards to good and evil this way. He states, in the original creation, God knew evil in the same way as an oncologist knows about cancer. Not by personal experience, but by knowledge about it. Because he's the expert in the field, so the oncologist will know everything about the cancer. And so God, being the omniscient God and the foreknowing God, knows everything about evil in that sense, even though he has never experienced evil in himself nor does he do evil. But after Adam and Eve sinned, he says, they knew evil in the same way as a cancer sufferer knows cancer, by sad personal experience. They knew evil by experiencing evil themselves, by disobeying God's word. Now, the text tells us their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked. 
Now, this is drawing a contrast between Genesis 2.25. Remember where it said, uh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That was the perfect world and the perfect garden, and they had come together like that. So it's drawing a contrast to that. So before they had sinned in their innocence, when they were naked, they were not ashamed. Why? Because they had nothing to hide, nothing to cover. There was no sin. So they didn't need any barriers between them. But now that they had sinned, they are no longer not ashamed. In fact, the word here for naked in Genesis 3-7, it's a, it's a different, slightly different word from the word that's used in Genesis 2-15. And it's implying that something had changed about their nakedness that they were no longer innocent, that they had become evil and sinful, that the image of God, that ability to reflect God, to, to image God, was forever marred. Not that it was completely lost, but it was significantly marred. And that beautiful harmony, that beautiful oneness that the man and his wife experienced originally in the garden, that was broken. Their innocence was replaced with thoughts of lust, desire solely for the benefit of self, rather than for the benefit of the other person and for God's glory. They thought that they would achieve more freedom and more satisfaction if they disobeyed God's word and went beyond the boundaries that he had set for them. But what they found out was that they lost their innocence and they are now forever enslaved to sin. They found slavery instead of freedom. Sin has now infected every part of their being. And so at the core of their being, they had an awareness of the sin within them and an innate sense of shame takes over. Not satisfaction, not fulfillment, not happiness, not goodness, not even God-like qualities, but shame overwhelmed their entire being. something that they had never experienced before. And now they felt the need to cover, to hide and protect themselves, even from each other and from God, because they feel dirty. And they see the other person, and they know that person's dirty as well, so they want to hide and even bring barriers and protect themselves from each other. One commentator says, mistrust and alienation replaced the security and intimacy that they had enjoyed. So what do they do about their nakedness? Look at the second half of verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why fig leaves? Well, fig leaves are pretty large leaves. And so they basically found the, the biggest leaves that they could find and they put it together and made loincloths with it. 
<laughs> and as one commentator put it, this was the first attempt to cover up sin and shame and guilt. And while they have maybe in some sense covered themselves up from each other, from their sin and their guilt, they cannot do that with God. Because God sees everything. And from that day onward, every human being that is born seeks to cover themselves up somewhere. To man in his sin seeks to cover his shame and his guilt through his own works. You know, their own self-made righteousness to somehow cover their sinful hearts. So for some, it may be trying to live a good life. For others, it's trying to be good to others. For others, it's trying to be religious and maybe even coming to church or being involved in some kind of religious activity. For others, it's going through you know, lots of self-sacrifice and whatnot. But these are all man-made efforts to cover one's sin and shame and somehow declare themselves to be good and righteous. Look, I'm doing all this, so I'm good and righteous. But you know what? None of these things will make man righteous. Because remember, the issue of sin is not merely on the outside. It's on the inside. It is something that is within us. And the Bible says, even as we had in our Bible reading this morning from, uh, from Romans 5, you know, it talks about the fact that because Adam was the representative of the entire human race, meaning God determined Adam uh, to whoever Adam was, you're going to represent the entire human race. So whatever happens to you is going to happen to the, whoever is coming behind you. And so when Adam fell, the Bible says, all of humanity fell along with Adam. All of humanity was in Adam. And therefore, sin and death came to all humanity. And that's why every human being that has been born after that is born now with sin. Adam and Eve, they were created innocent, but then when they fell, their nature changed, and that nature is now passed on to every human being. And every human being now, from the time they are born, not through their external actions, from the time they are born, they have a sin nature with them, and they stand guilty before God. And on top of that, as that tiny individual grows, by their own sinful actions, by our own sinful actions, we begin to break the perfect standard of God the perfect standard of his goodness. And so even that way, we stand condemned and guilty before God, and we deserve the just penalty for our sin. But here's the good news, as we read again in Romans 5, that God, because of his goodness, and his grace, and his love, 
he sent another representative, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who came and died in our place, taking our condemnation, our shame, and our guilt on the cross. And his perfect, obedient life is what will make the many who believe in him ultimately to be made righteous in God's sight. For those who believe in him, they become in Adam. Adam becomes our representative. So his perfect righteousness, his perfect righteous life that he lived on earth then is put on us. But those who remain in Adam, his sin and his nature is put on us and we stand condemned before God. Romans 5.17 says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in Jesus Christ. Let me remind you again, no amount of what you do, no amount of good works, no amount of trying to be good, trying to be righteous will make you right with God. You will still fall short of God's perfect standard of goodness and perfection. And you know you will never measure up because you cannot deal by yourself with what is on the inside in your heart. Only God can change that. Only God can deal with that. But if you trust in Christ, if you believe that he truly died for your sins, for your shame, for your guilt on the cross, then you can have a right relationship with God. Would you not turn to Christ today? I mean, God is so good. And I want you to remember this. Because when the angels fell, when Satan fell, he felt no shame. He felt no guilt. And they will never repent. And they will never turn to Christ. But you who have not put your trust in Jesus... The fact that you are feeling shame and guilt, that is a grace of God. That he allows you to feel that. That is, a, that is a warning sign saying, yeah, you will never be right with God on your own terms. So would you not turn to Jesus? Maybe this is all too much for you. I would love to talk to you at the end of the service or even later or talk to somebody that you've come with who's part of the church here and we'd love to talk to you more about this. And if you do believe even today and you say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe, now I get it. I believe in what Jesus has done. Then I would say, turn from your sin and continue to believe in him. But, but I ask, what does it mean to then 
continue to believe in Jesus. It's not just saying, oh, I believe Jesus died for my sins and that's the gospel and now I can live any which way I want. No, that, that's not what it means. It means continuing to believe in Jesus is now, what that means is now living according to his word, the Bible. See, God's word is what enables you and me to experience the goodness and the joy and the satisfaction and the blessedness of the life that God intended for you and for me. And the only way you can experience that life and be obedient to God's word is if you trust in Jesus. Let me just end by saying this. For those of us who are Christians and who are put their trust in Jesus, we, even though the image of God was marred when man fell, we now have the ability through the Holy Spirit now to reflect that image again as we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And guess what? When we reflect God and when we increasingly reflect Jesus, how do we do that? By living according to his word. But when we do that, guess what happens? We experience the blessed life. We experience the joyous life. A life Things just start to work because this is how God has designed it to be. You know, I just think there is so much that God has revealed to us in his word. And yet we believe in all these lies. And we and because we believe in these lies we don't live the kind of life that God intended for us. And I pray that this morning as you've heard these things and even about the importance of living under God's word and the blessedness it is, that it is the very sphere by which we can enjoy this life that God has given, it would cause all of us to continue to love God and to truly be obedient to his word. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are not a God who's evil, but you're a God who's good, and you do what is good. Your word is good, and your word is meant for our good. And so, Father, help us as we trust in Jesus, never to think of being obedient to your word as a drudgery, never to think of it as somehow uh, a way of restricting us, but help us to truly see that this is the way by which we can enjoy the life that you intended and be satisfied and find our joy uh, in you. Father, we pray that these words would not go through in one year and go out the other, but it would take deep roots in our hearts and help us to honor you uh, even as these things Um, impact our hearts. Thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name.